<clears throat> we're going to see that passage come back up uh, as we go through this. You know, we've been uh, talking about the eight marks of the church, and uh, this is mark number six. And uh, we took a little break there, for doing, talking some, uh, a little bit about stewardship uh, as we had the Life Institute with us and then Piercing Word, and, and so now we're back. Uh, talking about the eight marks of the church. This is the sanctifying church. That's uh, the one that we're going to be looking at today. But uh, we've been talking about different uh, urban legends or myths, and I, I wanted to, to bring this one to your attention today because it's, it's kind of humorous, I think. It's one of Hollywood's favorite um, bits of pseudoscience. Human beings use only 10% of their brain. And awakening the remaining 90%, supposedly dormant, allows otherwise ordinary human beings to display extraordinary mental abilities. So in the movie Phenomenon from 1996, if you ever saw that movie, John Travolta gains the ability to predict earthquakes and instantly learns foreign languages. How many of you would like to know about that or have that ability, right? Then in uh, 2014, or maybe it was 2004, I'm sorry, Scarlett Johansson becomes a super-powered martial arts master in the movie Lucy. And then in 2011, Bradley Cooper writes a novel overnight in the movie Limitless. He takes a special pill, right? And he's able to, it just opens up the, 90% of, the other 90% of his brain. He's able to do phenomenal things. So this uh, ready-made blueprint for fantasy films is also a favorite among the general public. In a survey, 65% of respondents agreed with the statement, people only use 10% of their brain on a daily basis. But the truth is that we use all of our brain all of the time. Here's why. How do we know? For one thing, if we needed only 10% of our brain, the majority of brain injuries would have no discernible consequences, right? Since the damage would affect uh, parts of the brain that weren't doing anything to begin with. That doesn't make sense, right? When someone has a traumatic brain injury, it's a significant issue. When they have a stroke and it affects the brain, it's a problem. It's affecting a brain that's working at 100%. We also know that natural selection discourages the development of useless anatomical structures. Early humans who devoted uh, scarce physical resources to growing and ma maintaining huge amounts of excess brain tissue would have been outcompeted by those who spent uh, those precious resources on things more necessary for survival and reproductive success. Tougher immune systems, stronger muscles, better looking hair, just about anything would be more useful than having a head full of an inert issue or tissue. So just this brain tissue that's sitting there not doing anything. We've been able to back up these logical conclusions with hard evidence. Imaging techniques like a PET scan and an fMRI allow doctors and scientists to map brain activity in real time. The data clearly shows that large areas of the brain, far more than 10%, are used for all sorts of activity from seemingly simple tasks like resting or looking at pictures to more complex ones like reading or doing math. Scientists have yet to find an area of the brain that doesn't do anything. Some of our brains, I guess, just anyhow, don't function <laughs> like other people's. I'm not that smart. But, uh, so how did uh, we come to believe that 90% of our brain is useless? The myth is often incorrectly attributed to 19th century psychologist William James, who proposed that most of our mental potential goes untapped, but he never specified a percentage. Albert Einstein, a magnet for misattribution of quotes, has also been responsible in reality, the concept most likely came from the American self-help industry. One of the earliest mentions appears in the preface of Dale Carnegie's 1936 mega bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
The idea that we have harnessed only a fraction of our brain's full potential has been a staple for motivational gurus, new age hucksters, and uh, uninspired screenwriters ever since. Obviously, this is uh, bad news for anyone hoping to find a secret to becoming a genius overnight. I'm sorry. Uh, the good news, though, is that hard work still works. There's plenty of reason to believe that we can build brain power by regularly working and challenging mental tasks, such as playing a musical instrument, doing arithmetic, or reading a novel. So, I, I want to keep my brain sharp, right? And uh, so there's a couple of things that I've done. Uh, I have played Sudoku, or Sudoku, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's that, you know, the number game there where you have to get, yeah, I love that. And it keeps my brain sharp. I also played June's Journey. It's the one on the top right. And it's just a, it's a puzzle game. Um, you know, it's I, on my iPad. You have to find different things. Um, and it just keeps my brain active all the time. And I haven't played the other one in a while, but it's Portal and Portal 2. Those, are my, those two are my favorite of all time video games. Because um, it's a thinking game. You have two portals, two holes that you have to shoot in walls and other areas in order to move through different uh, rooms. Um, and so in order to do that, you, you know, you, sometimes you have to defeat enemies and different things that are shooting at you. So you have to uh, use these holes multiple times to get through these rooms and then to be able to get to the exit. So it's shit, you just have to constantly be thinking, how do I get from here to there? The hardest one that I ever had in there was um, having to shoot a hole down on the floor below me and then having a hole on the other side of the wall so that when I fell through it, it shot me across the room to the platform on the other side. It took me forever to figure that one out and how to do it. But those are the things, you know, we want to keep our brains active. We want to keep them sharp. That's what it's saying here. We, ha we use 100% of our brains. And so that's important that we do that. <clears throat> so, as we've been talking about, there are uh, many common myths about the church that are misguided at best and dangerous at worst. And here's the myth that we're going to be looking at today. You can emphasize personal holiness as much as you want and be a healthy church. Now, the key word there is emphasize. We can emphasize. We can talk about it all, all day long. Oh, we need to have personal holiness. We need to be sanctified. And we can talk about it all the time, but if we don't do anything about it, there's the myth. The myth is if we just talk about it and sit around and enjoy each other's conversation but don't ever do anything to bring about personal holiness and sanctification, we're not going to be sanctified. So that's the myth. The myth is a, uh, this emphasizing of it. And this myth, if believed, can be dangerous because it can give someone false, a false sense of security that they can be truly united together with Jesus without looking uh, increasingly like him. And then number two, it dilutes and pollutes the church, which God intended to be uh, potent and pure. And so we know that this is a myth because Jesus said a clear mark of a healthy church would be a church filled with people who are being uh, conformed more and more into the image of his son. That's what sanctification is. It's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we go through this pa uh, multiple passages today. But before we do that, would you just bow your heads with me as we just uh, commit it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today as hungry people for your word. We want to know your word. We want to be transformed by it, Lord God. I pray today that your Holy Spirit would accomplish that in each heart and mind. That, Lord, you would just move powerfully. Lord, the great thing is that you're able to apply these passages to each person in a different way. 
all at the same time. And so we worship you today because you are a God who is capable of doing that. So we come to you now humbly as your servants, as your flock. Lord, would you guide us as the good shepherd? And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be looking at the sanctifying church today. And as we've been doing in this series, we're going to look at it from the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the early church, and the teachings of the apostles. Then we're going to look at a picture of it, a metaphor, as it comes up in Scripture. And then we're going to look at how it applies to us today, how that mark marks, whether or not that mark marks us as a church. And so the sanctifying church and the teaching of Jesus, we have to look at John chapter 17. Verses 13 to 17, or 13 to 19. I want to give you a little background before we dive into that passage of Scripture. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 26, has historically been entitled the Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. This is where he's praying for three different groups. First, he prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Then he prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then finally, for future believers in verses 20 to 26. That's his high priestly prayer. And in the middle of this prayer for the disciples, verses 6 to 19, we see his teaching on sanctification and the means by which his disciples and future believers can continue the process of sanctification. So let's look at that then, that little section, verses 13 to 19 in John chapter 17. Here's what God's word says. I am coming to you now. Jesus is praying. He's talking to his father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the, uh, of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So, we see this means of sanctification. Uh, As Jesus points out, he's expressing to the Father that he's coming to him now. You know, this is getting close to when Jesus is going to ascend. He's praying out loud for the benefit of his disciples so that they can have the full measure of his joy within them. And he gave to the disciples God's word. And this brought hatred by the world. Isn't that, that's just true. He said, I gave them the word, they understood it, they embraced the word, and because of that, they're, they're experiencing hatred from the world. Jesus was not asking the Father, the Father to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one while they're in the world. So again, he says, I'm not, I don't, I'm not praying to take them out, separate them, no, but would you protect them while they're there? Paul reminds the Ephesian believers that our struggle is not with human beings, but rather it's against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He tells the Ephesian believers that in chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus was not praying for isolation, but infiltration, as one commentator puts it. He's like, I don't want them to be isolated. I want them to infiltrate. I want them to, to be salt and light in this dark world. And so Jesus was praying that his disciples would be sanctified in the world. And we see that sanctification comes by the truth. And what does he say here about the truth? Your word is truth. This right here, by the Bible, God's holy word is truth. That's what brings about sanctification. That's what transforms us. That's what, how we pursue holiness and become more like Christ, is by being in his word. And we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. 
What does that look like? So the Greek word for sanctification means set apart for sacred use, cleansed and made holy. That just comes from uh, the footnote in the NIV Life Advocation Bible. Our theme last year was pursuing holiness. And the spiritual life journal that we provided for you focused on various commitments. Holiness in, in all these areas, in prayer, the word, service, giving, relationships, the gospel, and worship. And the commitments under the heading Holiness in the Word were to read the, through the Bible with my Idaville Church family in 2021 and to memorize one verse a month with my Idaville Church family in 2021. So we do the memory verse every Sunday for that month. And then we have the whole reading through the Bible um, um, guide for you in the back of the Spiritual Life Journal. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Again, in the footnote of the Life Application Bible, it says, The follower of Christ becomes sanctified through believing and obeying the word of God. He or she has already accepted forgiveness through Christ's sacrificial death, but daily application of God's word has a purifying effect on our minds and hearts. Scripture points out sin, motivates us to confess, renews our relationship with Christ, and guides us back to the right path. That's so important. It's not just reading God's word. That's what I was saying. Hold on, because there's more to it than just reading his word every day. But it's applying it to our lives. How does that apply? What is God saying to me through his word? How does he want me to be transformed? What attitudes and actions does he want me to change? What speech or language does he want me to change? What changes does he want to take place in my life? That's that process of sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us this. For the word of God is living and active. Isn't that wonderful? This isn't just a dead piece of paper with words written on it. This is alive. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing a soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And when it judges the attitudes and thoughts of our heart, that's where we begin to transform. We begin to change and we say, God, oh, I confess this before you. There comes sanctification right there. There becomes the pursuit of holiness right there. Oh, God, uh, please uh, work out this particular situation. There's sanctification taking place right there. It's God's word. It's truth. It's alive and active. And it, it transforms us as we spend time in it. Ken Gangle says this, the Greek word for sanctify is hagiazo, which means set apart for God's use. And then he quotes Bruce, who's another commentator. This involves their consecration for the task now entrusted to them. It involves further their inward purification and endowment with all the spiritual resources necessary for carrying out that task. This purification and endowment are the work of the Spirit. But here, Jesus declares the instrument of that work to be the truth the truth embodied in the Father's word, which Jesus had given to the disciples as he himself had received it from the Father. The very message which they are to proclaim in his name will exercise its sanctifying effect on them. That's cool. That message is the continuation of his message just as their mission in the world is the extension of his mission. Isn't that awesome? Like what they're sharing with people has a sanctifying effect on them. It has a purifying effect in them. Bruce is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that, quote, being proclaimed to the nations. It also includes teaching the nations to obey everything Jesus had commanded them from the Father. We see that in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus sanctified himself, he said, so that his followers could also be truly sanctified. 
Warren Wearsby says this, God's truth has been given to us in three editions. His word is truth, John 17, 17. That's where we're at. His son is truth, John 14, 6. And his spirit is truth, 1 John 5, 6. We need all three if, uh, if we are to experience true sanctification, a sanctification that touches every part of our inner person. With the mind, we learn God's truth through the word. With the heart, we love God's truth, his son. And with the will, we yield to the, we yield to the spirit and live God's truth day by day. So we learn, love, and live God's truth. It takes all three for a balanced experience of sanctification. So Jesus' teaching helps us understand that sanctification comes from truth, which is found in God's word, the Bible. So for sanctification to take place, we need to be in God's word every day. So what did the early church have to say about this? Well, flip, keep flipping backwards to Acts chapter um, 5. Verses 1 to 11, and we see the sanctifying church and the teaching of the early church. You're going to be familiar with this passage of Scripture because it's about Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Uh, Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So there was sin that was trying to infiltrate the, the early church, the starting of the church. And we know from this passage that lying was the sin that Ananias and Sapphira were judged on. And, and Peter says, you, you haven't just lied to people, to human beings, you've lied to God. George MacDonald wrote this, uh, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Right? We're constantly trying to look like something that we're not. If, you, if you've ever been a, a part of a multi-level marketing business, uh, one of the phrases they like to use is fake it till you make it, right? So you tell people, oh, everything's great. This business is going gangbusters. It's amazing. You got to get in on this, right? And, and yet you're, you're spending more money than you're making to try and, try and build this business. And here he's like, that's, that's not good. They built, I, Warren Wearsby then uses this little, uh, um, it's a poem. They build the front just like St. Mark's or like Westminster Abbey, and then as if to cheat the Lord, they make the back parts shabby. <laughs> wow. Put this facade on the outside, right? But it's not that way on the inside. We do that as human beings, don't we? We put this mask on, this front on, 
to show people that things are, are really great. Social media, this is a problem on social media, that people make things look like what they're not. And then you find out later that their marriage is falling apart, their children are having problems, they're struggling financially, um, they're addicted to something. They don't ever put that on social media. And so what you see on social media, don't always believe. <laughs> I think there's always a, a lot of deeper things going on there. Here's the realities, though, that we see in this passage of Scripture. The property was theirs to do with uh, what they wanted. They didn't have to sell it. They didn't have to give all the money to the church. They were not required to, to give all those proceeds from the sale of the property, but they were required to be honest about their giving. That's the important thing. If we look back at Acts chapter 4, we better understand their desire to make it appear as though they had given the total amount of the sale of the property to the church. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37, we read these words. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, uh, sold a field uh, he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There's one example. And then if you go back a few more verses in Acts chapter 4 to verses 34 and 35, we read this. Joseph, uh, oh, it talks about the fact that Joseph wasn't the only one who had done this. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone um, as he had need. So they're, they're looking at all the other people doing this, like, we want to do that too. But we don't want to tell people that we had to hold back a part just to save and that would have been fine had they done that. My guess is that pride was also a contributing factor in Ananias and Sapphira's deception. They wanted to be counted with those who were giving sacrificially to the church. And they could have been, had they just been honest. But then we see the sanctification that takes place in the church. This is a tough one. It's tough. It's not easy. Why was their lie judged so harshly? And I just say, aren't you glad that lying today doesn't bring the wrath of God like this? Like, boom, we just fall over dead, right? At the feet of someone who's asking us to be honest. First, the Lord was establishing his church through the disciples, and he wanted it to be holy and sanctified. He did not want sin to be a part of the start of the church. He wanted it to be set apart. The, uh, the footnote of the Life Application Bible says, This act was judged harshly because dishonesty, greed, and covetousness are destructive in a church preventing the Holy Spirit from working effectively. All lying is bad. But when we lie to try to de deceive God and his people about our relationship with him, we, we destroy our testimony about Christ. And this was not the first time that the Lord judged harshly. Warren Wearsby shares this. It's worth noting that the Lord judges sin severely at the beginning of a new period in salvation history. Just after the tabernacle was erected, God killed Nadab and Abihu for trying to present quote-unquote false fire to the Lord. He also had Achan killed for disobeying orders after Israel had entered the promised land in Joshua chapter 7. And while God was certainly not responsible for their sins, he did, not, he, he did use these judgments as warnings to the people and even to us. Like we have to be aware. God takes sin seriously. He takes sanctification and holiness seriously. So when the Lord was establishing new things, he wanted them to be established correctly with integrity and honesty. Paul shares warnings from Israel's history with the Corinthian believers before he says these words. These things happened to them 
as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He gave these same warnings of what happened with Israel. And he said, be careful. We all have the capacity to deceive and lie, not only to other human beings, but also to the Lord. And then we see the result here. After Ananias' death, we read these words, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. After Sapphira's death, Luke writes, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And this was the correct response of the people. Reverence for God and his church. That was the, the right and correct response to God's righteous judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. The church needed to not only emphasize sanctification, but they needed to practice it. It wasn't just good enough for them to emphasize, oh, we need to be pure and holy. We need to be sanctified. We actually have to, we have to work it out too. We have to be obedient to it. God takes sanctification and holiness seriously, and so should we. But what did the apostles have to say about sanctification? Paul says something in Romans chapter 8, and the apostle John says something in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at both of those. <clears throat> We're going to turn first to Romans chapter 8. We're keeping you busy this morning. I'm keeping myself busy because I have to get these glasses out when I read. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. Verses 28 to 30. This is what God's word says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. There's sanctification right there. Conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The primary thought, and I pointed it out, and I stopped at that particular spot, is that conforming to the likeness of his son. Sanctification is just that. It's becoming more like Jesus in our attitudes, thoughts, speech, and behaviors. I quote again, God's ultimate goal for us is to make us like Christ. As we become, as we become more and more like him, we discover our true selves, the persons we were created to be, how can we be conformed to Christ's likeness? Listen again. By reading and heeding the word. By studying his, meaning Jesus' life on earth through the gospels. By being filled with his spirit and by doing his work in the world. So notice that the way to sanctification is again pointing us to God's word. The truth, that's where we find it. In the Bible. But it also in, encourages us and includes being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing his work in the world. So that's what Paul has to say, and keep flipping back then to 1 John chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 to 6. This is what the Apostle John wrote. I'll give you a minute to get there. 1 John chapter 3, 1 to 6. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope 
in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Warren Wearsby outlines uh, the first three verses really, really well and just helps us to understand what's happening here. Verse 1, he, Wearsby says uh, that it tells us what we are. We're children of God. We're his child. Verse 2, it tells us what we shall be, like Christ with a glorified body ready for heaven. And verse 3 tells us what we should be, purified, holy, sanctified. For a child of God to sin indicates that he does not understand or appreciate what Jesus did for him on the cross. That's Wearsby's words. And then uh, Max uh, Anders says this, one of our resources then for living a more, holy, uh, yeah, a more holy lifestyle is pondering and meditating upon who Jesus is, who we have become in him, and what our life is like, uh, likely to be when we see him. The only way that we can know about Jesus' life is how? Reading God's word. There we are. We're back to God's word again. His truth. As followers of Jesus Christ, we still sin sometimes. True? And what John is referring to here is willful, continual, habitual sin. Wearsby continues, an unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. The unbeliever sins against law. The believer sins against love. We're not trying to deliberately disobey God, grieve the Holy Spirit, or take lightly Jesus' sacrifice. That's what he's talking about here, those that are doing those things. We understand the importance of reverencing God. And if we continue to sin as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we don't truly understand or appreciate Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Jesus came to take away our sin you know, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice a perfect lamb, right? And it was only to cover over their sin. It wasn't to take it away. Because Christ had to come, and he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist points out in John chapter 1, verse 29. He says, hey, listen, look, that's Jesus. He's the lamb of God, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross, was buried and came alive again, he took our punishment for sin on the cross. And guess what? That perfect lamb didn't cover over our sin, but it took it away. And as we confess that sin before God, his word tells us that he doesn't remember it. Aren't you glad? That's the hope that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. That's the sanctification that takes place. And so I'm, I don't know about you, I'm pretty excited about that. I get amped up about what Christ did for me. He didn't just cover over my sins, he took them away. And the key to not sinning is found in living in Christ. That's what he says here. Uh, to abide in Christ means to be in fellowship with him, to, follow, uh, to allow nothing to come between ourselves and Christ. It is this communion or abiding with Christ that keeps us from deliberately disobeying his word. And that comes from Wearsby's commentary. And then uh, John MacArthur says this, Biblical terminology does not say that a Christian has two different natures. He has but one nature, the new nature in Christ. The old self dies and the new self lives. They do not coexist. The Christian is a single new person, a totally new creation, not a spiritual schizophrenic. It's the filthy coat of remaining humanness in which the new creation dwells, that's important, that continues to hinder and contaminate his living. 
He is no longer the old man corrupted, but is now the new man created in righteousness and holiness, awaiting full salvation when he dies and is given a new body. Isn't that wonderful? Like, we, there's not two things going on in here. Well, now, we have that, that sin that, you know, Paul says, why do I do the thing I don't want to do, and why don't I do the thing that I want to do? Th- that's just a battle within uh, us. That's this, what did, what did MacArthur, this coat, like this, I don't know, this coat, it's our skin, right? It's this human body that's still contaminated, but we are changed. We are new people that are living inside of us. The soul that lives within us has been transformed from corrupt to incorruptible, from bad and old to new. And so we have to, but we need to live in that hope. We need to live in that reality, right? That we're changed and not allow those temptations to, to have sway in our lives. So we need to abide in Christ. The apostles wanted us to understand that becoming more like Jesus takes reading and heeding God's word, being filled with the Holy Spirit, pondering and meditating on who Jesus is and who we are, or who we have become in him, and abiding in Christ. We not only see this mark proclaimed to us through teaching, but also through a picture, a metaphor. And this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 12, 9 to 12. Let me read those verses for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, you want to turn there, beginning at verse 9. Gene read some of these verses for us this morning. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's the picture. It's a holy nation. Again, who we are in Christ. Did you hear all the different things that we are in Christ? We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. Holy meaning sanctified, God's own possession, people of God, recipients of God's mercy. The holy nation represents a nation that's pursuing sanctification. And the reason is so we can proclaim the excellencies of God. And then what, who we used to be prior to Christ is, here he says, we're not a people. Peter says, not a people. We're not recipients of God's mercy. And then he goes on, he says, what we should do as a result of following Christ. He gives us a negative and a positive. The negative is, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Anders says, sinful desires is best understood as strong desires motivated by selfishness. And then the positive side is this. He says, keep your behavior excellent, live such good lives, practice good deeds. And here are the accusations that the early Christians were up against. They were accused of being disloyal to Caesar. They were accused of hurting local business because they spoke against idol worship. Do you remember that one? And then speaking against idol worship got them labeled as being godless. Imagine that. They're Christians. They're followers of Christ. And they're saying, oh, we're not going to worship Bibles. Well, you're godless. I think we're more, yeah, we're following God. It's just not what you want to hear, right? Peter is encouraging the believers to show the Gentiles through their changed, sanctified, holy lives that the accusations are not true or valid. 
See, so it's more than just emphasizing sanctification. It's actually doing things that prove that we're moving towards becoming more like Christ, and people will see that. And then these accusations that they bring against us, they won't stand because they're like, oh, no. You said, what? You said Stuart was, what? No, that's not who I know. Let me tell you who I know. And it's because we're becoming more like Christ. The result of living this holy, sanctified life would be that the Gentiles would glorify God when Christ returns. And so how does this apply to our lives? How will we know if this mark of the church marks our church? There's five different ways that we're going to look at. We will see evidence of God's supernatural work in our lives. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So the work of sanctification is the work of God in our lives as we submit to him. Second, we will see evidence of God's sustaining work in our lives. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The perfecting work in us is God's sanctifying work, making us more like Jesus. Number three, we will see evidence of our part in the sustaining work of God in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in the, my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. And so the working out of our salvation is, again, the process of sanctification. Number four, we will see evidence that we are being sanctified by time in Scripture. So studying God's Word. Uh, we see this in uh, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That was one of the, the first passages we looked at. This takes us back uh, to, to what we learned of sanctification from Jesus, the, the early church and the apostles. It comes from being in God's Word. And number five, we will see evidence that we are being sanctified through timeless obedience. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, <clears throat> bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the, re and the appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So obedience over the long haul is denying ungodliness and worldly desires, living sensibly, righteously, and godly, and looking for Jesus' second coming. <laughs> And so our desire as a church, as leadership in the church, is to have a church filled with people who are being conformed more and more into the image of the Son, the image of Jesus Christ. That is sanctification. So we had you take these surveys, right? And we want to bring that into this too. There was one of the five survey questions that was in the top ten of the least difficult as a church. So that's good. That's good. It was number seven of ten. Here's what it said. I can confidently say that being part of our church has deepened my desire to be more like Christ. That's encouraging, isn't it? Being a part of this body of believers has given you a desire, a deepened desire, 
to be more like Christ. I'm excited that most of us have a deepening desire to be more like Christ, but notice that the primary word in that sentence is desire. And I think that next question, the next question helps us understand that while we have a deepened desire, we don't really know how to act on that desire. It kind of goes back to the myth that we can emphasize the pursuit of holiness all we want and still not be a healthy church, or be a healthy church, I should say. The second one was four out of ten. This was almost at the very bottom as most difficult for us. The people in our church understand what sanctification means and the means God uses to sanctify us as Christians. I know that some people struggle with the fact that, oh, I don't know what other people are thinking. That's what they were thinking, what the people in our church understand. They're like, I don't know if they understand that or not. Um, but I hope that every one of us can now define sanctification as becoming more like Jesus Christ. And I hope also that we now know the means that God uses to sanctify us. Jesus taught us that sanctification comes from the truth which is found in God's word, the Bible. The teaching of the early church helped us understand that God is serious about sanctification and holiness in his church. He wants that for us. The apostles' teaching helped us to understand that becoming more like Jesus takes reading and heeding God's word, being filled with the Holy Spirit, pondering and meditating on who Jesus is and who we have become in him and abiding in him. There are two commitments in the spiritual life journal that apply to God's word. We have some out on the slat wall or the information station wall. I encourage you to pick one up today. But again, it goes back. These are things that we're going to have you do every year with that spiritual life journal. I'm committed to read through the Bible with my Idaville Church family in 2022, and I'm committed to memorizing one verse a month with my Idaville Church family in 2022. And I encourage everyone to make those two commitments. The daily Bible reading guide is close to the back of the journal, and the monthly memory verses are in the very back. But I want to encourage you to take it two steps further. We can read God's Word, feel really good about, you know, highlighting that day, I got it done, got it done, memorize this verse. But I want to encourage you to do these two steps. After reading the Bible, the daily Bible passage, journal what God is saying to you through His Word. That's the application process. That's the sanctification process. It's like, God, what do you want me to know? God, help me to understand who you are. Write down his attributes. Then say, God, is there, some, is there something that I need to confess here? Is there something that, that I'm not doing that I should be doing or something that I'm not doing that I should be doing? And then confess that before him. Write it down. Let him speak to you. Is there some way that I can be praying for someone else? that you're teaching me through this passage of Scripture? And then how do you want me to be ready for the future? Write those things down. What's he teaching you? And then take it that next step beyond that and share it with somebody. Because guess what? That could be helping them in their sanctification process. And so the next step on the back of your communication card, the first one is this today, and that's to commit to reading through the Bible, journaling, and sharing what God is teaching me with others. So where did the remaining three questions fall Right in the middle of the survey. They're, just, they're neither difficult or, or easy for us. Here they are. Um, our church has helped me to make a plan for my own personal sanctification. I don't know that we've helped each person make a personal plan for their own sanctification. I, I, we haven't had a class on that. <laughs> we haven't sat down with you individually. We have definitely provided resources for you in the Spiritual Life Journal. Uh, Pastor Mark and I would love to meet with you if you would like to develop a plan for your own personal sanctification. 
I mean, we're, we're willing, but the initiative has to be on your part. We're not going to contact you. If this is something that you desire for yourself to be fully sanctified or to go through the sanctification process and you want help with a plan, please contact us. I just believe that if we don't do it, if you're not motivated to do it yourself, it's not going to happen. If Mark and I just track you down and call you on the phone and say, hey, we're coming over tonight and we're going to sit down and talk to you about your sanctification plan, it's not going to last. It has to come from you. And so the second next step today is to set up an appointment with Pastor Stewart or Pastor Mark to discuss my personal sanctification plan. It's clear, and here's the, the uh, fourth of the five uh, questions. It's clear that the leaders in our church are constantly growing in their Christ-likeness. And I trust that this will be more evident as we pursue becoming more like Christ. We've been talking about all of this, and I just hope that you see in the leadership that that's our desire. We desire to become more like Christ. And then the, the final question was, our church consistently teaches on and encourages personal and corporate sanctification. And I'm telling you, as holiness and sanctification come up in the various passages of Scripture that we're studying through the book of Genesis right now, I'll make a concerted effort to highlight sanctification and encourage everyone to seek to become more like Christ. And our theme last year was pursuing holiness, and we want to continue to do that even this year and beyond. Just because we had that theme for one year doesn't mean, oh, well done, okay, we got it. No, that's a continual process. As we think about the vision and the traction that uh, the, the board worked on with the help of the Holy Spirit, I just want to remind you of the core values. And here's one of them. It's on the front of your bulletin this morning as well. Our leadership strives to be, more, uh, to be led more by Jesus, to lead more like Jesus, so we can lead more to Jesus. That's that sanctification process that, as leadership, we are committed to. Under the growth strategy, the three-plus uniques, one is preaching and teaching God's Word. Through the weekly exposition of God's Word, we all have the opportunity to learn about Jesus and who He, and who he is and, and who we have become in Him. And then we can learn about abiding in Him and how to do that. And then under the proven process, uh, Sunday school and discipleship groups are the proven process. Sunday school and discipleship groups are a great way to learn the truths of God's Word. And when we learn the truths of God's Word, we can become more like Jesus. And then just two goals that I think apply to the sanctification uh, that we've set for this year is have a 10% increase in the number of people attending Sunday school and or discipleship groups because you're going to learn about Jesus and have a 10% increase in the pursuit of holiness as evidenced through salvation, baptisms, and accountability. As we're accountable to one another, we're going to read God's Word, we're going to journal it, we're going to share with others. Now this morning, I don't know about you, but sanctification is a struggle, isn't it? It's not simple. Because it means that we, we make sacrifices in order to be in God's Word. And so this morning, I just want to open the altar we're going to have members, uh, part of a prayer team, that are going to come forward. You can pray with them if you want to. And it doesn't have to be about sanctification. Maybe you're just dealing with something else today. You just, I need somebody to pray for me about this. You come and you can pray with those, that prayer team. Or you're just welcome to come and kneel at the altar today and just commit to the Lord that I am I'm going to take the steps necessary to, uh, to just pursue holiness, to pursue sanctification in my life. 
like I said, it may be something that the Holy Spirit's spoken to you about through God's word. It may be something you're dealing with personally. You just come as the worship team plays quietly and then they'll lead us in the closing song in just a few moments. And my